Coming up today, Vicky tries to make sense of Trump versus TikTok. Natasha tries to make business liability interesting. And Matt Reynolds explains why humans are so bad at understanding risk. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Amazon took us a step closer to a Jeff Bezos-owned dystopia by announcing the launch of a flying surveillance drone that can patrol your home and scare off intruders. The Ring Always Home Cam can be piloted remotely from a smartphone and was just one of a frankly ludicrous number of smart home devices announced by Amazon at its big 2020 hardware showcase. This was also the week when the new NHS contact tracing app was released in England and Wales. The app uses Bluetooth to track other people that a user comes into contact with and alerts them if they've had contact with someone who tests positive for COVID-19. It also allows you to check into venues using QR codes. And this was also the week when we learned that just 11% of people who were asked to self-isolate by England's NHS test and trace system uh, actually self-isolated. It's particularly worrying because the UK government has known since June that only a very small proportion of people were self-isolating but it took until this week for it to announce it'd offer a 500 pound grant for people on low incomes who had lost income as a result of self-isolating lastly boris johnson announced this week that businesses can now face fines of ten thousand pounds or even be closed down for not complying with the government's social distancing rules and has imposed the compulsory use of masks in hospitality and retail two of the hardest hit sectors of the uk economy Matt Reynolds, just to pick up on your 11% stat, so that means that 89% of people contacted by NHS test and trace in England aren't self-isolating properly. Yeah, that's right. So this is the people who were contacted by NHS test and trace because they had come into contact with someone who had a confirmed case of COVID-19. And yeah, as you said, 89% of them broke the self-isolation rules within the last 14 days. Uh, So some of them went out to the shops because they... Yeah, but they were asymptomatic and they didn't think they were infectious before. Some of them had to go to work. Some of them had to care for someone. So a whole bunch of reasons. But really, this is quite worrying because there's not an awful lot of point of testing and tracing if you're not breaking those transmission chains at the end of the process. And that means getting people to self-isolate when they need to be self-isolating. And this isn't a case of having a go at people for not doing what they're told, because I think the research also found that almost 70% of people wanted to be able to self-isolate, but circumstances meant that they couldn't. Yeah, exactly. And we've kind of seen the government respond to this, as I said, with this £500 grant to people on lower incomes that might incur a loss because of self-isolating. But I think it's really important that, for instance, some people said, well, they didn't know how to get groceries. So maybe we should think about how do we support people to get access to you know, the food they need? How can they care for people that they need to care for? So rather than thinking of these punitive measures, the government also announced this £10,000 
fine for people that don't follow self-isolating rules. We should really be thinking about, well, what limits people from self-isolating and how can we encourage that? And funnily enough, that's kind of what my story later on is all about, having a slightly more sympathetic view to rule-breaking and rule-following, and that hopefully would encourage more people to uh, stick by the guidelines. Just one of the many reasons to keep listening to the show. Vicky, what did you learn this week? I learned about chilli peppers. Um, I've been growing chilli peppers for the first time this year, and so I've been looking into them. Um, And I learned about the world's hottest chilli pepper, which is called the Carolina Reaper. Now, I should say this is like the world's official hottest chilli pepper because, you know, there may be hotter ones out there, but they've not been kind of tested and approved. So the title does go to the Carolina Reaper. Now, that reaches more than 1.5 million on the Scoville scale, which is the scale used to measure spicy heat. And in 2018, a man was hospitalised after eating one of these chilli peppers with sudden severe headaches, which doctors think was due to something called reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, which causes arteries to constrict. So, yeah, so are you growing hot. Carolina Reapers in your kitchen or have you gone for something a bit milder? No, I've gone for the humble cayenne, which is spicy enough for me, I'll, I'll say that. Do you know where that is on the Scoville scale for context? Um, I think it's more like um, one point one and a half thousand rather than one and a half million. So we're talking, right. you know, orders of magnitude. Yep. Uh, Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? So something you might eat alongside your super hot chilli pepper might be a nice lobster sandwich, lobster thermidor, something like that. And I learned that lobsters don't have teeth. Teeth. Lobsters don't have teeth in their mouths. Instead, they have them in their stomach. So their stomach is essentially really close to their mouth, and they kind of chuck up, um, rip off big chunks of food and chuck them into their stomach where they're ground together, where the food is ground together by these three surfaces that are called gastric mills. And these are, they're basically teeth, so they're, they're stomach teeth. And actually they're a good way of ageing a lobster as well. So by looking at its stomach teeth, you can see how old a lobster is. Natasha, I can see from the show notes that you have deli- you're going to deliver the longest fact in podcast history. So go on. Well, I like to challenge myself with the longest fact, and it's also sort of like Inception because it's the longest fact about the longest fact about the shortest street. So this weekend, I'm going to York, which I'm sure everyone's excited about. Um, I will pass by my favourite street, which is called Whitmer Whatmergate, which is the shortest street that has the longest name of all. It's currently a length of raised pavement between St. Crux's Church Hall and a small road junction in York. And the name of it is shrouded in debate. So according to the plaque at the end of the street, in the year 1505, the street was known as Whitnow-Whatnowgate, which translates to what a street. And if you've seen it, you might think what a street, because there's literally nothing there. There's like two doors, really bad. However, some say that the origins of Whitmer-Whatmer are actually supposed to mean neither one thing nor another. In the Middle Ages, it was the locations of the city's whipping posts and stocks, which could possibly account for the whip part of the name. Anyway, so I thought about this and I thought, oh, I wonder what the narrowest street in in the UK is. And actually, the English have a really odd sense of humour when it comes to naming streets. So the narrowest street in England is Exeter. Um, it's in a space in Exeter called Parliament Street, and this is it's sort of 1700s joke that kind of stuck. It measures 25 inches at its narrowest point and 45 inches at its widest point, and it has a length of about 50 metres, and it's also a bit smelly. So it's always been a bit smelly, and that's part of the joke, apparently, um, and it's still smelly. It's off of Greg's, 
and people we in it all the time. So any facts about streets, I'm interested. It seems to be a big thing for me this week. I don't know how long it will continue, but um, yeah, that's my fact. Very good. And if anyone would like to share some more, frankly, hilarious 17th century humour, then <laughs> we're all for it. And we'll catch up on uh, Natasha's adventure to York on the show next week. Um, I also went for the tried and tested animal fact genre. So I learned this week that snails need moisture to survive, which is fairly obvious. Um, but if it's hot, i.e. the weather isn't cooperating, it's too hot, it's too dry, they can actually sleep for up to three years. And during this time, the snail hides away in their shells and secrete mucus all over their bodies to protect themselves from drying out. So they can go for a very, very long mucusy sleep. Oh, I've always Isn't wondered... Like where snails, you know, when it rains, you see hundreds of snails and they're just yeah. everywhere. Like in many parts of Britain, they're all over the streets. Where are they when it's not raining? It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Answers Maybe. on a postcard. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll follow up on that and, and report back with my findings next week. Further excuses to continue listening to the Wired UK podcast. Our first story this week, and I'm very sorry, Vicky, is all about TikTok. Yes, it is. Um, so this is a story that's obviously been going on for a while. Um, and, you know, it's it's a pretty big story in the in the tech world. So we've been following it. TikTok is still hashing out its future in the US. This weekend could see new downloads of the app blocked as TikTok in the US, that is, as TikTok continues to work out a deal to avoid it being banned in the States. Um, it's been going on for some time. And while the story is about TikTok, it also reflects much more broadly on current geopolitics and it could have much wider implications. Now, I apologise at the start, not because I hate TikTok, but because this story keeps changing. And almost certainly by the time people listening listen to this, we're recording on Friday, everything will have changed. But as we sit here now, what's the latest yeah, so as you say, it's all a bit complicated, but here's my attempt at a summary. Uh, so going back to August, Donald Trump signed an executive order essentially saying that the US would ban TikTok unless its US operations were taken over by a US company. Now, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, has been working to pull together a deal that will keep everyone happy and mean that, you know, it doesn't get banned. Uh, for a while, it looked like Microsoft would have some involvement, but that came to an end in September when Microsoft said that ByteDance had informed it it would not be selling it TikTok's US operations. So instead, it's working with Oracle and Walmart on a deal which involves the creation of a new company called TikTok global but it all gets a bit complicated from there on there's still a bit of confusion over exactly how the deal would work including questions over the ownership of tiktok global and exactly how that would be made up and the deal needs the approval of the us but potentially also china as china now requires companies to get approval before exporting tech such as TikTok's algorithm. So where things stand at the moment, this deal is sort of being worked through um, and, you know, we'll see what, what ultimately comes of it. So I'm really glad you're taking us through this, Vicky, because this is one of those stories where I'm constantly seeing TikTok in the headlines. It's a blur of things, like you said, there's Microsoft, there's Oracle, things are happening, and I just never really know when to jump in because I don't quite understand what's going on now and i don't understand how we got to this point i do know that tiktok is a short viral video app so that's you know my my <laughs> basic knowledge is there but when did things start going wrong because it feels like we're you know all down a windy street of lots and lots of messes and confusion so why are we even in this situation in the first place 
Yeah, so you are correct, Matt Reynolds. Um, TikTok is a viral short-form video app. Um, it's uh, you know very popular, particularly among younger people. Um, you'll see lots of sort of viral dance crazes and um, funny jokes and things like that um, in these kind of short videos that you get served by the TikTok algorithm. Um, so why has it come under all this pressure from the US? Well, in the executive order, Trump claims that TikTok is a national security threat because of TikTok's Chinese parent company, ByteDance. So the order states that TikTok's data collection, quote, threatens to allow the Chinese Communist Party access to Americans' personal and proprietary information, potentially allowing China to track the locations of federal employees and contractors, build dossiers of personal information for blackmail and conduct corporate espionage. End quote. So basically, the argument is that Chinese authorities could, in theory, force TikTok to give them user data. Now, TikTok says that the data it collects is industry standard. We all know that plenty of US apps gather a lot of personal data, too, uh, and that it has never shared data with the Chinese government, nor would it ever do so. TikTok itself also does not operate in China. There's a separate app there called Douyin, which is similar, um, which is for the Chinese user base, but it's separate from TikTok. A quote from TikTok. TikTok user data is stored in the US and Singapore with strict controls on employee access. We've never provided US user data to the Chinese government, nor would we do so if asked, and we do not moderate content based on political sensitivities. Claims to the contrary of these facts are false. End quote. And so this is interesting because it has a lot of echoes of what's happened with Huawei in the past, sort of same claims, um, all of these things are claims, not necessarily fact. I'm just wondering why why TikTok? Because there's a lot of uh, companies that have, you know, headquarters outside of the US that have not been tar- targeted. Why TikTok in particular? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say, right? <laughs> um, but... I would say it's impossible to ignore the broader geopolitical context here and especially tensions between the US and China. And TikTok is really one of the first big consumer apps to come out of China and enjoy global success, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But we've seen that technology is finding itself in the midst of conflicts uh, between the US and China. Uh, Natasha, you mentioned Huawei, which the Mm -hmm. US has restrictions against. It's not exactly comparable because obviously it makes different products there's potentially different security concerns there um but trump has also taken aim at wechat uh the messaging app so there's a bit of a theme here of um you know technology being drawn into uh, broader tensions and the whole story raises a lot of uncertainty for big tech and how things could play out in future and um, one of the questions is whether this heralds the rise of a new kind of splinter net or balkanization of the internet where your experience of the world online differs depending on where you live now remember this is already true in in china for example china blocks a lot of us apps and websites including things like facebook um, and one congress- congressional official told us we are finally having the debate china had two decades ago when it put in the great firewall because it found foreign technology threatening its political system only now is america catching up with foreign technology that is a direct threat to our open system um but yeah so it's it's we're not used to seeing it happen this way right you know we know that american apps are blocked in china and now we're seeing potentially the same thing happen to a chinese well not a chinese app but an app that has links to china um 
but we'll see what happens because if this deal goes through tiktok will still be working in the us um and yeah we don't we just don't know how things are going to play out at the moment and we've got the us election coming up in just a few weeks time which might change everything all over again but what does this mean for other companies because we live in a reality where most of the world's largest technology firms are based either in the US or China as a result of having very strong economies and tens, hundreds of millions of people that speak the same language. So it's inevitable that there's going to be another TikTok and another battle between the US and China over who gets access to what sort of data. So what does this mean for the future? Yeah, right. So it's, um, as I say, it's hard, it's hard to know because the way this has been done is quite unusual. Um, obviously, for any tech companies based in China that are looking to expand globally this is probably um, you know they're probably following this with great interest and it's probably not not great news there's probably um, you know it 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 might not look particularly a good time for that Um, you you might think on the US side that it it could seem good for US tech companies you know for example less competition Um, we saw Facebook put out its uh, Instagram Reels uh, feature, uh, which is very, so it is also a short form video app um, in the midst of all this happening. But in the long term, the inconsistency of regulation around tech could likely pose an issue to US companies as well. Um, you know, kind of these executive orders suddenly coming out and targeting specific companies, it, it's not a broad policy. Uh, that says what will happen for all tech companies in the future. And, you know, if other countries follow suit and start taking a similar approach, that may also make it harder for companies to expand elsewhere. So there's a lot to take in and um, a lot to kind of wait and see what happens. Um, but yes, it's it's challenging. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be waiting, we'll be watching and we'll be seeing what happens and no doubt bring this story back onto the podcast when Donald Trump decides that he wants to do something else similarly ridiculous. Our second story this week. Natasha, your challenge, make business liability interesting. I will do my best. So, um, yeah, I I feel it is quite an interesting um, situation because it basically causes um, the risk of now. So instead of waiting and watching, we are going to be experiencing the results of new government policy straight away. So after weeks of encouraging people back to their workplaces and into eateries, the government this week performed another U-turn that sent most office workers back home to Zoom and has put minimum wage staff in pubs, restaurants and supermarkets in the eye of the storm. So as I mentioned before, Boris Johnson has announced that masks are mandatory in shops, pubs and restaurants and that businesses will be fined or even closed if they don't comply with social distancing rules. Now companies are bracing for a wave of liability claims which could come from their own staff whistleblowing about feeling unsafe or if they're dealing with the general public from any customer that feels that this company has not complied with the rules and exposed them to the virus. A massive mess. So if I'm understanding this right, these were guidelines that were already in existence already, but now they've kind of been backed up by the power of law. So now businesses really have to follow them or else risk these fines, like you just said. So my question is, does that massively change things for businesses and staff? If they were following most of these guidelines most of the time already, what does this threat of fines actually do for compliance? Does it, does it change anything in a real realistic way? 
Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the law because that's exactly the crux of this problem. The government has announced these new rules, but actually it doesn't comply with the current employment law. So it, actually what they're saying has put businesses in a really difficult position because um, based on government guidelines, people can say, you know, your staff member hasn't put on a mask. I caught coronavirus here and it's your fault and launch a claim against them. But in fact, under those um, under current employment laws, they can't tell staff you must wear a mask because that's the law. Um, so it, it's a weird kind of middle ground that we've reached where the government has kind of um, gone in an advance on, on what the law is actually allowing them to do. So business lobby groups this week have already stated that the Prime Minister's U-turn is extraordinarily reactive and disruptive and that it risks derailing an already fragile economic recovery as well as undoing any safety confidence built up with workers and consumers. So what's happened here is that Boris Johnson may have tried to pull the plug on the Back to Work campaign, but it's too late. Businesses have already spent millions on measures to make sure that their offices are COVID secure and are really reluctant to go back to the way things were during lockdown. So the people that have started coming back in the last few weeks have already been put in a difficult position. Now that their workspaces have been adapted, some companies are claiming that it's perfectly safe to come in, regardless of the government guidelines to stay at home. Some bosses, I was told, are even asking people to return to the workplace and sign disclaimers to absolve their companies of any responsibility if they catch the virus there. But the biggest problem um, of this latest development this week is that the most stringent part of these new rules have hit on places that are manned by casual workers who have very little job stability and are on minimum wage. I'm talking here about hospitality and retail, two of the hardest hit sectors of the economy during this crisis. They're not only going to be policed by their bosses to make sure that they're wearing the masks all time, but staff are also going to have to contend with members of the public who may not want to comply with the rules. And there's a problem here of two things butting up against one another. You've got hastily drafted legislation that's come about during a period of national crisis going up against long established employment law. So you end up with all of these peculiar situations. So what if an employee can't wear a mask or if they itch or their face gets hot and they just take it off for a moment? What happens then? It's it's very difficult because the government hasn't really clarified what business owners should do if staff members or customers claim they can't wear masks for medical reasons. So I spoke to David Jones, who's an employment barrister, and he accused the government of being very good at making public announcements of what they're going to do before they've actually drafted the law. So under current measures that were introduced this week, if a customer spots a staff member without a mask on, it could cost them their job. So the government is saying that if staff don't follow the rules, then it becomes a disciplinary matter, which could infringe on people's human rights under current laws. But that's simply not enforceable under current employment laws. So if you have someone who says, look, I've got a medical condition and I cannot wear a mask, it's very difficult for an employer to say, that's not true, you must wear a mask um, or or else. But also, if you're in a public-facing establishment, you run the risk of a customer saying, one of your staff members isn't wearing a mask, I'm going to launch a claim against you. So it's a very difficult situation. What about on the other side? What, What if customers refuse to wear masks? 
Mm. So this is a big issue that people in hospitality especially are having to contend with at the moment. So I spoke to James Chavarini, who's the owner of this family-run Italian restaurant in southwest London, who says that the latest government mandate has put him in a position of being a doctor, a judge and a policeman towards not just his staff, but also the customers that come in. His team at the moment currently collects customer details for track and trace, but they don't really have the power to check whether the details that are given are right or not. So in his words, he said, if someone rocks up and says their name is Saddam Hussein and they live in Baghdad, I don't have the legal jurisdiction to say, show me your ID. There is no power there. So he says these new rules are making things even worse. They're exacerbating matters because they oblige them to confront customers who refuse to wear masks. And this is, again, asking his staff to not just be, you know, waiters, busboys, hostesses and hosts to to his business, but also asking them to be bouncers, basically, to uh, put themselves at potential risk by confronting customers customers who might not want to, um, to to put on masks or comply with the rules. And this is interesting because we're already hearing about um, situations where people have been spat at or attacked by members of the public who don't want to comply with the rules. And if you think about people who are on very, very little wages, who have already been stressed out because of the situation, and have huge job uncertainty, this is a horrible situation to be put in. So he explained um, to me also his his nightmare scenario, which I believe is is shared by a lot of business owners, which is someone catching the virus um, and blaming it on his establishment for letting someone else in without a mask. So to him and many other people, it doesn't matter whether the claim is successful or not. If a customer says, I'm going to take you to court, the legal fees on top of the crippling costs that he's already borne by the pandemic um, could be enough to sink his business. And that's what he's saying, basically saying, you know, the stress of it all has been hugely detrimental to his health and to the health of his staff. They're now being told to shut by 10pm. They're being told to wear masks. All these things are quote unquote reasonable, whether you like it or not. But then to add um, the extra risk of being policed all the time um he says is too much so like you say natasha this just foists another burden on top of what is already one of the most challenging times for any business my understanding is is that businesses are already pretty good at knowing what risks are out there and protecting themselves if a risk of you know being sued or you know having a legal case against them did come up so you know is there reason for us to believe that actually if people did start complaining to business or bringing legal cases against businesses, that actually their insurance would protect them and we're unlikely to see this actually go to court and businesses, you know, face legal repercussions. How protected would they be by their insurance? Yeah, you'd think they'd be quite protected, but the latest government announcement could have muddied the waters quite significantly. So companies at the moment, as you said, are responsible for people's safety and this duty of care could extend to refusing entry to people who are unwilling to comply with the rules even if they say they have a medical exemption. So, yeah, this this situation basically foists even more responsibility onto businesses just to comply with the contracts that they have with their insurance providers. So far, though, insurance companies have been pretty dire at responding to companies' requests for help during the pandemic. The nerves from small business owners are completely understandable because it took a high court ruling to determine that companies forced to close down during lockdown should be able to claim under the most business interruption policies which mention an outbreak of a disease. So before then, insurers failed to pay out business interruption claims to small businesses and they were left basically in the lurch. So what what we're likely to see here is businesses erring 
on the side of caution and people being refused service even if they say they have a valid reason to not wear a mask and probably we're going to see as I said before more altercations with members of the public who don't want to comply with the rules so a really big shame for people who do have a reason not to wear a mask and who are complying with the rules but might find themselves unable to go to establishments because people are afraid that they'd be exposing themselves to this risk. Mission accomplished. Susanna, uh, uh, Natasha, you have made business liability interesting. Thank you. Podcast at <laughs> wired.co.uk. If you're a business owner that's grappling with all of these additional burdens, and you can read an awful lot more about how businesses are trying to get to grips with these new challenges in the story, which is included in the show notes. Our third and final story today, Matt Reynolds, is about risk and why we're all so bad at working out what is and isn't risky. It is. So if you're in the UK, you'll know that this week on Tuesday, September 22nd, England tightened its social distancing rules. So as Natasha's been mentioning, pubs and restaurants will close at 10pm and people can only meet in groups of six indoors and outdoors, among some other rules. Now, a lot of these rules have people flummoxed. I'm sure you've seen this. It's become a favourite game of people on social media and TV and radio anchors to grill politicians on what exactly falls within the guidelines and what falls outside of them. So you might have seen a recent favourite of mine, uh, Matt Hancock squirming on Sky News as Kay Burley asked him what a established relationship is defined as. And the reason for that is because the government's rules allow close contact and therefore sex between people in established relationships, but not for people in a more casual situation. You might note that Matt Hancock wasn't really able to define that, although he did say that him and his wife are in an established relationship, so they can definitely have sex, not sure about everyone else. The reason why I bring this up is because I'm sure you've seen lots of people on social media talking about um, you know, these rules, and a really, another really popular one has been this 10pm curfew that we were just talking about, and lots of very clever people say really, really insightful thing, which is, ah, the virus must only start infecting people at 10.01pm, which is why we have pubs shut before 10 o'clock. Obviously, that's pretty funny the first time you hear it. Maybe when you see it retweeted for the 7,000th time, it becomes a little bit less funny. But the reason why I think all of these examples, whether they're kind of embarrassing and kind of silly, are actually really, really important are because they're all about risk and how we're really confused about where coronavirus risk lies and how we can reduce it. And this is really because we're really, really bad at understanding risk in the, in the real world. And often these rules that we're using to guide our lives, they're actually not great at helping us navigate risk. And they can sometimes do the opposite. They can sometimes lead us to more risky situations. And this is super problematic when at the moment life is just one big risk assessment. So in an effort to kind of calm my own frustration and anxiety, I spoke to a couple of people who really know their stuff about risk to figure out five rough rules that might make approaching this whole coronavirus pandemic and the way we think about risk a little bit easier. This is really interesting because it is one of those things where you seem to see contradictions everywhere, whichever way you slice it, right? You know, I've seen people say things like, oh, so I can only have 15 people at my wedding, but I can sit in a restaurant with 60 strangers. Um, You know, you can always kind of find some way to find a contradiction in different coronavirus rules. But what's the most important thing that you found out about navigating that risk? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Vicky. And I think the same is true of any rule set in any country, that there are going to be contradictions, there are going to be things that don't make sense. So what I've tried to do with these rules and thinking about it is actually apply some broad principles that might help people navigate risk more generally, rather than saying, ah, yeah, go grouse hunting, um, but don't go to your nan's uh, wedding or don't go to your nan's birthday party, that type of thing. So the key rule, I think, is that we should think about risk on a spectrum and not as a binary. So there are not things that are risky or not risky. There are situations that are more risky or situations that are less risky. So let's think about this 10pm curfew. So this morning, I saw a photo of lots of people on the streets of London who had left pubs at 10pm and people were sharing this photo, angry retweets on social media saying, look, this 10pm curfew is causing people to crowd and chucking people out on the streets. Um, Wouldn't it be better if they were in pubs and they were slowly walking home, you know, spread out through the next hour or the next two hours? But let's really think what's kind of going on here. We know the risk of transmission is much higher indoors and it's particularly bad in loud, crowded or poorly ventilated spaces. So, yeah, it's not ideal to have large groups of people gathering together, but you do reduce the risk if you reduce the time they spend in these high-risk environments. So when you see a photo like that and you think people are getting angry, think, well, what's the alternative? Where should those people be? What's a less risky environment and what's a more risky environment? And in that case, having regulations that reduce the time that people spend in loud, crowded indoor areas does move them from a more risky environment to a less risky environment, even though it might look like that outside situation is kind of crowded. And so I spoke to Julia Marcus, who is a Harvard epidemiologist who's done loads of work on understanding um, how you prevent HIV transmission. And she basically said, if you start from this framework where you think that you assume that social contact is essential and people are going to gather no matter what you'd like, and then what you can instead do is think about, oh, how can you support the lowest risk way for people to gather? And really what that means is let's make it easier for people to gather outdoors. Now, the Welsh government really gets this. So like in England, meetings in- indoors are limited to six people. But outdoor gatherings of up to 30 people are permitted. Now, in England, that last bit is different. So we have this rule of six, and that means that inside and outdoors, only six people from different households are allowed to meet. And the problem with this absolutist approach is that it suggests that the two situations are just as risky. It's saying the risk factor is how many people are meeting. Whereas what we actually know, if you think about risk as a spectrum, is that the setting of that risk is even more important than the number of people. So, like the Welsh Government, you might want to say, how can we encourage people to move outdoors, rather than how can we limit the numbers of people meeting altogether? So it isn't so ridiculous. There was a very good letter to the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, pointing out that 30 grown men can go outside and shoot some ducks, but seven children can't go outside and feed some ducks in England. So actually... It seems silly, but it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. These statements, they do seem like they're, you know, pointing to edge cases to try and, you know, I don't know, trick the government. But actually, they do make sense because they point to these some of these inherent ironies. And and, and another thing I think that we should be thinking about, and this is maybe my, my second golden rule, if you like, is that we shouldn't just be thinking about the risk of catching and spreading COVID-19. Although... I completely agree that it is the most important risk. It's the reason we have these rules 
in the first place. But there is never just a single risk factor. You'll have heard people talking about the economic impact, right, of shutting pubs earlier. That's one risk factor. And economic impacts have health impacts later down the line. But other impacts you might want to consider are, for instance, the mental health impact, particularly on young people who are more vulnerable to anxiety and depression and loneliness during lockdown. I think we saw um, research from University College London that suggested that young women were particularly likely to be affected by depression, anxiety and loneliness during lockdown. So when you're saying to people you can't meet seven people at, at your home or you know earlier on you can't meet someone else from outside your household, you've got to think, well, actually, there's a risk factor in terms of the mental health burden that's going on there as well. And this actually relates to that whole question about self-isolation, the thing I mentioned right at the beginning of the show. So when we're saying to people you should self-isolate, that's great, right? And that will really reduce that greatest risk. And if they do follow that, the risk of them passing uh, COVID-19 to someone outside of the house is actually nil if they correctly self-isolate. So that big risk factor is completely reduced. But there are other risk factors going on there. So they might lose their income because they might lose their job because they can't go to work. They might be unable to care for loved loved ones or they might not understand how COVID-19 is transmitted so they might not you know, know what they're doing and these are all factors about how people why people might break these rules for you know quite reasonable reasons and one thing the government should be doing is not just thinking about like how do you put rules in place and how do you enforce them but how do you reduce the risks that encourage people um, to be more compliant with the rules so again it's thinking about these other risks that are associated with decisions and trying to reduce those risks that make it easier to for people to comply with the core component of what you want them to do so does that mean we should all be less angry about photos of people breaking rules In short, yes. So I spoke to another academic, someone called Nicholas Pidgeon, who's a professor of environmental risk at Cardiff University. And both him and Julia Marcus emphasised that shame is not a good way to get people to comply with the rules. Instead, we might, might want to ask ourselves, well, why are we shaming people? And what both Marcus and Pidgeon suggested to me was that this is because... When government doesn't take an active role or when leadership doesn't take an active role, the onus of policing risk starts to fall down to individuals. So people start to say, oh, I should be telling these people off. Like you see the photos of people at beaches and and people say, okay, that's bad. And people start shaming. And actually what both of these academics said is that's a symptom of a system where risk is not being appropriately... um, managed by authorities and that's why you get this reaction of people shaming so actually rather than shaming people as i kind of said we might want to think okay well why are they gathering in this way what are the actual risks associated with that and what could we do to encourage um, other behaviors if indeed this is a risky behavior you might see that with university students where they have a need to socially contact and and you know socialize so how might you encourage that, them to do that in a safer way rather than saying they're breaking the rules they're doing it outright um you know and we should just ban it i think it's it's about having a slightly more sympathetic approach to um rule breaking and risk analysis one of the issues here as well is that although a lot of the rules are kind of one size fits all they apply to everyone equally presumably the risk is different for different people too and that balance of risks you were talking about with you know other aspects coming in like the need to socialize or mental health issues or you know and the need to to make money if and not being able to isolate presumably that's different for everyone as well so it's not really a a static thing yeah exactly and i think that that's if you like my my fourth golden rule is that 
you need to acknowledge that risk is constantly changing and it's different for different people. That's one of the most difficult things about this pandemic is that we know that the risk of getting severe illness is not evenly distributed. It's, it's borne by older people, people with underlying health conditions. But we also know that the risk can change over time. So a month ago, the number of new cases in the UK seemed fairly stable. But we know that in the last few weeks, especially in the northwest of England, um, you're seeing these cases really, really go up quite significantly. So your risk of catching coronavirus is hugely dependent on where you live in the country. um, And your risk of getting ill is, is hugely dependent on your own personal circumstances, your own health. So I think that Really, when people are thinking about how they make decisions about their own risk, you should be thinking about your own life, the situation you're in, what you're doing, what's going on around you, and also, you know, what are you likely to be, what situations are you like to be in in the next week? So I heard people talking about, well, what should we do about Christmas? Maybe at Christmas you want to see your family, so maybe you are going to break the rule of six, right? Maybe you're going to have eight family members gather in one home. Well, if there's going to be elderly family members there how can you lower your own risk profile in the weeks preceding that event to then minimise the risk when you, um, you know, interact with those people? So it's not a case of saying, well, I'm not a risk, so I'll just do whatever, or these rules are too inflexible, so I'll just break them all the time. It's about having this slightly more um, nuanced approach and thinking, OK, let's do things that are appropriate for my situation and maybe we can kind of you know, tweak them on an as-and-when basis. I guess I'm slightly hesitant because it sounds like I'm encouraging people to break the rules, but I think that we've got to acknowledge the reality that these rules are quite harsh and they kind of counteract some of the basic things that humans want and need to do, and we need to think about realistic ways to give people tools to analyse if they're going to divert from those guidelines, how can they do it in a way that is as safe as possible? And we heard earlier this week Chris Whitty explaining... Uh, quite eloquently the challenge of understanding risk and this idea of shared responsibility but there's a final piece to this puzzle when it comes to risk and understanding risk and that's who's telling you to do things you do or don't want to do so it really matters where the rules are coming from and who's setting them yeah, and, and this is a thing that both the academics I spoke to really, really drilled home. In a crisis, who is telling you the information is super, super important. So we know, interestingly enough, that although trust in politicians has declined over the last few decades, trust in scientists has actually stayed relatively stable, even though you don't always see that reflected you know, in the news. We know that from surveys, people tend to trust scientists more than they trust politicians. And that's probably why you've seen uh, in the UK, the chief medical officer and the chief Scient- scientific officer have a very prominent role in talking about these rules, especially uh, in this last week. They were the ones to talk about it before uh, Boris Johnson in Parliament. So I think this final point about risk is all about who is communicating risk and how are they communicating it. So it's really, really important for governments that they present the information in a way that people can trust their organisation management and also make people more likely to comply with it. In New Zealand, we saw a really, really good example of this, of a message, a scientific message that was portrayed in a way that was both human and sympathetic, but also pretty firm. So I think their whole slogan and and the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, um, who was very trusted in the country, was saying, stay home, stay safe, be kind, which I think is actually really realistic and human way of approaching this. It's saying, look, it's best to isolate from other people. That's what's going to keep us safe. But also remember, it's a really tough situation and it's not always possible to follow 
to the letter all of these rules. So let's be sympathetic to each other and think about, okay, how can we make these situations more easy? So I really think that's a really good example of a a humanised approach to this. So hopefully, if anything, from these rules, people will take away actually... Look, let's evaluate each circumstances, you know, on their own merits and what would be better and what would be worse. And let's think about in a bit more sympathetic way, OK, why are people doing this and how can we encourage them to take a, you know, a, a less risky approach? So I think that's a, a, it's a much easier way to think about risk. I think it, it alleviates some of that frustration around these you know, very dogmatic in-out categories of what's good and what's bad podcast at wired.co.uk what do you make of matt reynolds's golden rules for navigating risk have you found yourself in recent weeks and months tweeting out pictures of crowded pubs and bars um, asking people to behave themselves has your approach to individual risk and your place in society changed as a result of our shared responsibility to stay safe during this pandemic podcast at wired.co.uk this story won't make it into the show notes um, because i've somewhat awkwardly moved it to next week but you'll be able to read it on wired.co.uk on monday time for a little bit of your feedback now natasha what's in the inbox this week yeah, so Peter's written in with a bit of a gripe. Um, he says he's just listened to our latest podcast, which included the section on holidays. So if you missed it, last week we spoke about people who were waiting for the pandemic to be over to take their annual leave and have now found themselves with about a month to take by the end of this year um, because some companies are not allowing people to um, take it over the course of the next couple of years, like the government advice has suggested. So he was saying something that's nothing to do with his holiday, but about the language that I've used. And he says... Your use of the term staycation was driving me potty. A staycation isn't when you go on holiday in your home country. That's still a holiday. A staycation is when you have time off work, but stay based at home and maybe go for days out to the beach or an amusement park, etc. Obviously, he says, apart from that, very good podcast. Keep up the good work. I, I have to say, you know, Pete, you are a man after my own heart. I gritted my teeth when people started talking about staycations earlier this year, sort of, you know, going to a different part of the country, going to the countryside, going camping. All those things started being called staycations. But unfortunately, language has apparently moved on. So coronavirus has meant that staycations are now extended to anywhere within the land that you live rather than just the land that you own or rent it's depressing but unfortunately i cannot fight progress um whether i like it or not i agree that staycation should be you sitting in your living room feeling a bit bored and then when you come back to work people ask you how was your holiday and you sort of have to make something up because you didn't really do anything at all but aside from us pete we seem to be the only sellouts and sort of this this battle against the change of the word staycation but um yeah if, if anyone else feels really strongly about things please do let us know always happy to um you know feel compassionate about everyone else's feelings on terminology that we've now changed to mean something else podcast at wired.co.uk if you'd like to share your feelings on terminology any incorrect word choices that we may have used during this 50 minute podcast do get in touch and let us know also bring to us your pictures of chili pepper plants 17th century humor anything you want to share podcast at wired.co.uk we really do love getting your emails and we'll read out a selection of them on each and every edition of the show that's just about all we've got time for this week thanks so much as ever for listening and we'll catch you again next week goodbye goodbye Bye. Bye.